Welcome to the Sugar Science Podcast. Our mission is to highlight and connect researchers in the type 1 diabetes space. I'm Monica Wesley for the Sugar Science and your host for today's podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Inish O'Doherty. He is the Executive Director for T1D Projects and Kidney Transplants uh, at um, CPATH, which is uh, primarily located in Tucson, Arizona. He uh, has a chemistry degree from uh, University College Dublin and then uh, did more chemistry, got his PhD at Cornell, worked advisor um, in cardiovascular and uh, metabolic diseases, and then uh, uh, transferred to Pfizer Oncology in San Diego. And now he's been with CPATH for four years. So welcome, Inish. Thank you so much for talking to us. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity to connect. Um, so I just wanted to ask you, can you talk to us about how you became scientifically interested in type 1 diabetes? Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's somewhat of a, uh, uh, an undefined path where my background, as you said, was originally in chemistry. I worked in uh, cardiovascular, metabolic and endocrine disease and was in oncology. So, you know, pretty far removed from anything in the autoimmune space. And really, it was, it was a chapter in my life where I was looking for new opportunities uh, in Tucson, Arizona, because of uh, my wife's and the professor in the university here. And there was an opportunity at CPATH um, for a joint position in, in kidney transplant and type 1 diabetes. So, I had always known about type 1 diabetes, um, and when I worked at Pfizer, I had a little bit aware of some of the artificial pancreas and, and things in that space, but, but never had really had any deep scientific knowledge of it. So, so it's been for, a bit of a voyage of discovery and education in the first two years to get to where I am now, where I feel like I know enough to, do, to get by and probably do a little bit of damage. But, uh, well, that's good. Uh, um, but primarily, uh, you're sort of shepherding, I, I think, a lot of researchers through the, I guess we could say, the data thickets that, uh, you know, surround um, FDA regulatory processes and, and helping people onboard and understand how, or scientists, how to um, best proceed, um, you know, towards um, FDA uh, approval. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, and the, the space that we work in at CPATH uh, itself, CPATH is a, is a 501c not-for-profit, and as you mentioned, it's based in Tucson, Arizona. So, so where CPATH really applies its, its skills and has for the last 15 years, this is actually just coming up on the 15th year, is, is not so much in actually developing a drug or a biologic. Where we focus on is being able to optimize the process by being able to work in the pre-competitive space. So if you're at a company, which I was once upon a time, you develop drugs in the private space. Um, but a lot of the times when, you, when you're getting to clinical trials and you're doing design of clinical trials, the clinical trial will fail and they'll do post hoc analysis and say, oh, there was a signal in there. Oh, if only we had done this, if only we'd done that. And that's great. It designs the next new trial, but that trial did fail. And that yes. trial can fail due to poor, poor trial design. And poor trial design has a million sub of why it actually happens. Uh, and, and where CPAP focuses on is being able to elevate the process by developing tools to optimize trial design. Yeah. And these tools, we like to talk about them as solutions, but, but generally they take the form of biomarkers, clinical outcome assessments, uh, collections of models that form clinical trial simulation tools for doing things like optimizing the duration of your study, the power of sample size, endpoint selection. And it, it's these tools that we, we develop at CPATH with stakeholders from the community and that help optimize the process. So we are, really are focused in that pre-competitive space. And the way that we build those tools is, is with aggregated patient level data from the community. So again, it's kind of everyone looking to elevate 
the level of research so everyone can benefit, not just one, one individual company. So if some, if, if, you know, a group had an idea for uh, an FDA trial, say, and they want, they want to do a clinical trial and they want it, um, you know, they were designing their trial and what would, can you walk them through the process, walk us through the process, uh, how um, things would happen when they approached you? Yeah. So, so it, it works even like almost at the, the higher 30,000 foot level where you'd have companies that are considering entering um, development, mm-hmm. um, say in T1D. And they, where we've been working this far, and I'll use it as an example, is in the prevention space. So before you get your clinical diagnosis, um, but once you've reached stage one and are multiple iodoral antibody positive. So there's been a whole host of interventional studies in stage one and stage two, all phase two studies. The challenge is you can conduct phase two studies for proof of concept and investigator initiated studies. They are not seeking the registration of a drug. They are, they are proof of concept. That is absolutely essential to do those studies to move science forward. But when you want to go to the phase three space in this T1D example in prevention, the challenge is, is that a sponsor, a drug company is going to have to invest tens, maybe hundreds of millions of, of dollars to run yeah. that study. So they want to make sure when they're starting to think about bringing an asset forward to design a trial around it, okay, let's design our best trial on the cutting edge science. And they pick the top publications. The reality is that that super cutting edge science might be too cutting edge, as in it hasn't been validated in enough subjects. It hasn't been tested and and demonstrated um, to a regulatory level. I'm not saying that it's not true. It's just to a regulatory science level. And that's different for FDA and EMA rather than a publication and even clinical management. So knowing that that's a high bar, when a sponsor or drug company is thinking about designing a trial, they then have to go, well, what's the perspective of the health authorities, the regulatory agencies, and start from there. And sometimes that isn't where it needs to be. And it's not, that is not the fault of the FDA or the EMA. That is the fault of everyone, everyone in the community, because it, and it's not a blame game, it's just the reality. And it comes back to, if you want to be able to say, pick subjects, patients, for a phase three study in prevention, you're gonna to need to use the islet autoantibodies and probably some other p- patient level features to help classify them to see who's gonna be go fast and who's gonna go slow. Because if you can't separate that, your trial will fail Yeah. Because, because there's too much heterogeneity. And if you wanna use those new biomarkers for a registration purpose rather than a proof of concept phase two, and um, that's a big thing, it's a big deal. So, so how do you move the needle there if you're the, the drug company, well, you could say we could gather all this data together on ourselves from all these academics and we'll probably only get 30% of it because they won't want to share with us or it won't be available. Mm-hmm. And we'll build the case that we can use these new biomarkers. Yeah. And the reality is, is that that's really hard. <laughs> and it, like, it's too big for any one sponsor to try and fix. So the 30,000 foot level when I was talking about it is all sponsors in prevention were thinking about this being like, how do we use these biomarkers? We know the science is very strong, but the, the transition to regulatory uh, science and use in a phase three study isn't there yet. Yeah. So when they all collectively look at t- together, they can say, oh, well, we could actually work together on this, pool our resources um, and share the risk. But then everyone shares the reward that the whole community gets to use them uh, for registration study. So it's a, it's, a little, it's a little nuanced and different than just the individual sponsor, right? Yes. Um, um, but but the, the scale of the solution, and because it's publicly available at the end when we get these biomarkers endorsed, makes it a little bit more generalizable. 
So, yeah. So I like how you were speaking about, uh, you know, reducing risk in decision-making. That seems to be a really, uh, 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 an essential part of what you're doing, right? Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I mean, if you put yourself in the, the shoes of a clinical development lead at a, at, a, at a large biopharmaceutical organization, and I'm using the large version here just for the purpose of the, talking about it, you know, they have to go to the business unit, they have to go to their bosses, they have to go to the global heads and say, we think we should move this immunosuppressive asset forward and T1D because of XYZ. Mm-hmm. And then rheumatology comes up and says, well, we want to do this too. We want the same asset and we want to move it forward here. And then the psoriasis folks will come up and say, we want to do it as a dermatological agent here. And then they'll go, okay, science is all valid. How much is it going to cost to run the study? How much, how do we, and then what is the amount of risk we are taking on when we're thinking about designing a trial in each of these? And that's where, that's where when you're at the cutting edge of science and T1D and trying to move into the prevention space, it was historically hard. Because you could go to rheumatology, there's very well described um, uh, trial designs that are shorter. Mm-hmm. And you can go to psoriasis studies where it would even be even shorter um, and also less risky because it's a dermatological agent. So, so the idea that it's a really complex situation, um, but if you put yourself in the shoes of a sponsor and in industry, a drug developer, the more knowledge you can bring forward to your bosses <laughs> that the FDA says a biomarker can do what you says it, it can do is huge. And it reduces, it, it gives the ability to put more resources into that therapeutic area, T1D in this example, versus another area because is competition in, in organizations, right? They're, they don't have an endless amount of capital. And in terms of talking about um, what are some, you know, can you talk about any of uh, any of the, uh, of the trials you brought to bear, you've helped bring to bear with CPATH? Yeah, so, so specifically in T1D, um, the consortium itself uh, started in 2017. Mm-hmm. So um, in March of 2017, we actually have, and, and we've been gathering patient level data together in the prevention space from a series of observational studies. And we've been gathering that data together and reproducing a lot of what the academic community has clearly demonstrated over the last couple of decades. And now we're submitting it to the FDA and EMA. So we're still mid-cycle on it. We actually have our uh, EMA meeting coming up uh, uh, in a couple of weeks for for our qualification opinion, which is very exciting. So specifically in the T1D space, because it's a relatively young project, um, the number of studies that have used our endorsed biomarkers aren't, aren't there yet. Uh, there, we know that a number of sponsors are right on the precipice of, of, of incorporating to their studies. More generally at, at CPATH, um, you know, I think we have 15 consortia at this point in time uh, across a variety of therapeutic areas um, with some of the, the more long-lived consortia being in Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and there's been huge and, and polycystic kidney disease, a variety of rare diseases as well. There's been huge amounts of studies that have, have, have used the tools that we have developed, these publicly available tools, to accelerate drug development in those communities. And that's really what we're trying to, to apply in, in T1D as well. So you have a good track record in these other um, disease states and uh, sort of type one diabetes is the new kid on the block, but it, it all looks promising just because yeah. your process has been um, efficient and useful in these other disease states. So there's no, so there's all the hope and, um, you know, going forward in T1D that this will be the same kind of uh, paradigm. Right. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. Exactly. And I think the fact we're talking now in, you know, uh, September 2020, if we had talked in, in 2018, we, we still would have had a long road to go because we we're still bringing in patient level data. 
now we, we actually have our final submission in and we're, we're, we're there for the final the conversation coming up. So we're with, with EMA and we've got a, a bit more work to do with FDA, but it's, uh, it's in the not so distant future that, you know, we'll get, we're, we're optimistic we'll have the endorsement of these tools. So can scientists, um, you know, academics and uh, others out in the community uh, map the progress or, or follow the progress of, of what uh, the C, uh, CPATH T1D consortium is doing? How yeah, can they so, monitor it or, or sort of like keep an eye on what's, what's happening there? Yeah, so we're gonna, um, we're gonna keep folks informed through just general social, social media. Uh, we do a lot on LinkedIn. Um, I'm not so good at Twitter myself, so I, I kind of stay, stay clear of it. Um, so that, that's one way. Um, and then the other part is as well, we're going to be updating the website later this year when, when we get on the other side of the EMA qualification. Um, but it's the, the other part as well is we meet monthly with the, the, the folks from JDRF, mm -hmm. uh, the Charitable Trust, the pharmaceutical organizations who are members of the T1D consortium, but also a broad cross-section of academics um, who participate as members in the consortium too. So, you know, folks from all the, the big study groups like TrialNet, folks from Scandinavian countries where they're obviously world leaders in it as well, mm -hmm. uh, and, and the Teddy network as well. So we're, we're very fortunate to have uh, academic industry, patient advocacy and philanthropic agency um, participation on a, on, a, on a regular basis. Yeah, that's a very uh, robust collaborative environment. And I think it's, um, to my mind, it's, it's very important, it's very, um, it's just rich when you have that cross collaboration between the different disciplines. Uh, uh, it's one thing we talk about all the time at uh, the sugar sciences, sort of, um, you know, fostering the collaborative nature of science, which can be hard. I mean, can you talk to just sort of any IP concerns that uh, people may have? I mean, I think you already, we already spoke about it off for the record that this is a total pre-competitive space, but just to clarify it. Sure. Yeah. No, no, not bother. So the, the necessity of the tools that we develop is that they're publicly available. The, the formal regulatory submission processes that we use at FDA and EMA are there for the pre-competitive space um, so that the tools are available to, to the public to use afterwards. So, so by the very virtue of what we do, um, the IP side of it comes out in the wash because what we're going to make available has to be public. And right. sometimes, you know, when we're getting data shared with us um, to drive the development of these tools, that's a big concern because it's, it's like, but we generated this data and this data is our intellectual property and has value. And that is a, it's a truth. And that's why it's really hard to, to share data in a meaningful way mm -hmm. that we need for, for regulatory agencies. Because what, what defines the work we do at CPATH um, from a lot of other folks is that when we get the data uh, from individual, say, trials or pharmaceutical industry, because we do get phase two, phase, phase three studies as well, not yet in T1D, but uh, in the prevention space, but in, in other consortia, that data has to be anonymized, of course. We never mm -hmm. want anything with that, but it has to be patient level data. Mm -hmm. And we have to then bring that data in, curate it and aggregate it across all the data sets. So we have a bigger, a bigger data set to do our analyses on. And that's basically the virtue of what we do because we're again, a nonprofit. So we can be the third party that has the data, yeah. but we then have to be able to share that data, the patient level data in an anonymized form with the regulatory agencies so they can perform their own analyses. That is fundamentally different than publishing in an academic journal. True. So that, that, that can raise issues due to IP. It can raise issues down to just, you know, who's going to see the data. So, so the data contribution process for any consortia at CPAP is really the hardest bit. And it takes 
a long time, like between mm -hmm. a year and two years. <laughs> yeah, it has to and be carefully, carefully processed, right? And yeah, and it's trust, right, as well. And it takes time to establish trust for these things. Again, the, the, the work that we do at CPATH is really just translating the phenomenal efforts that have gone on in the T1D community over the last number of decades. The fact that things like TrialNet, Teddy, Anodia, and all the precursors and DAISY, Dippets, the fact that, the, and, and the German studies, the fact they exist is phenomenal. And yeah. um, it's about just helping, you know, put the pieces together in the right order and doing it through a formal submission to elevate it. So really, you know, it, I, I, we can't take so much credit for it at CPATH because it's based on the work of, you know, thousands of people over, over many decades. And of course, patients and their families volunteering in those studies. Mm -hmm. so, so it's really just the, the kind of final translational step using the right regulatory language, putting the data together in the right way. Um, and that, that's, it's, it's nice to be at that point to be able to help along an effort as well. Are there other regulatory, are, are there other sort of CPATH organizations in other countries um, that interface with their regulatory agencies, like Canada or, you know, Europe, or, or, is, or is this unique, is CPATH unique? Um, I'd always like to think CPATH's unique, um, <laughs> but uh, I think in the United States, um, there's some folks who do similar stuff to us. Um, the foundations of the National Institutes, National Institutes of Health do um, similar but slightly different. They don't always do as many regulatory submissions, but they're moving more in that in that way more recently. Um, in Europe, you have um, a group called the Innovative Medicines Initiative, uh, which is funded through um, European pharmaceutical organizations, but also the European Commission. And mm. um, when you look at their funding, I think for what they call IMI and IMI two, IMI one and two, it's about six billion. They do everything. So, so not everything is regulatory science, some is, some is basic science, but they, they also do look to have regulatory deliverables and they would put theirs through EMA, the European Medicines Agency. Mm -hmm. And when you go out to the broader network of countries uh, and kind of just, again, from almost a philosophical standpoint, but also just reality, when you look at the big regulatory agencies in the world, it's, it's FDA and EMA, and they're, they're, they're not identical. They're very different in their structure and, and how they review things like these tools will we develop. But when you go out into the other smaller parts of the ecosystem, it becomes a resource issue because these are civil servants who, uh, whose main priority needs to be the review of pharmaceutical agents. Wow. And this other part is very valuable, but it's also a value add. You still need to do a lot of the, the main things. So when you get to some of the smaller farm, um, uh, regulatory agencies in some of the countries, it's just a resourcing issue. They don't have it. Um, PMDA in Japan has started uh, some efforts in what they call biomarker qualifications, specifically at safety biomarkers. But it's, it's really, um, you know, FDA started the, the kind of charge on this pre-competitive collaboration space. EMA has followed and, and, and given it their own um, flavor and style. Um, and then some other, other smaller ones are coming along as well. Does, does China have anything like this or India? Um, I'm unsure of China. They've been a, such a rapid developing um, drug development community in the last five or 10 years. Right. I, I wouldn't claim to, to know the details on it. Um, and I know that they're, they're very likely innovating as well, just given the scale that they're going at it. Um, and India, I'm unsure of as well. Mm -hmm. It's curious because they are um, seeing a large, uh, just sort of right from the diabetes uh, viewpoint, China and India are both seeing a, a large increase in type 1 diabetes cases, which is, right. um, you know, of course, uh, concerning, but... Um, uh, it would be, uh, I think, very helpful to for them to have some kind of model like this. Yeah, a, lo a lot of the times it comes down to 
say we get a tool endorsed with FDA, one of the obvious and most pertinent and, and very valid questions is what data did you use to do it? So say, for example, we only had European data in our possession that or that had been shared with us to build a tool. A fair question would be, is, well, is that demographic representative of the United States? And the answer would be probably no. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, so really it comes back to the data we have. Unfortunately, we have a mix of European and US data. So it, it kind of checks both boxes. Mm-hmm. And it is going to, you know, what we're seeing now in the data space is that type 1 diabetes is so heterogeneous, right, that it's, um, there's, first of all, there's many ways to get type 1 diabetes, but there's also seems to be different um, disease presentations once people have it. So it, there's heterogeneity there. Um, and so that further complicates data sets, doesn't it? It does. It does. And that, that's why you need more. Yeah, more <laughs> yeah, is better. More is better and, and quality is important because, because you're, you're 100% right. Um, the fact that some, some folks will present with little antibodies and rapidly move towards a diagnosis and some will just kind of sit for a long period and then accelerate. There's reasons for that. Um, the, the true like mechanistic, detailed, granular science reasons, that's still in the development stage. That is not ready for, for prime time regulatory science conversations. But what we're doing is moving slowly backwards with the regulatory science so that hopefully one day it's going to accommodate those. But again, yeah, you're, you're 100% right. It's not all patients are the same. And, and each, 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 each one needs to, you need to understand where they're coming from and what their likely trajectory is so that you can best understand how they might be suitable or not suitable for a certain study. Right. Uh, yeah. And if you can develop the landscape of the biomarkers and wed it to the different um, heterogeneic types of type one, uh, you'll be in a better position for treatment eventually. So, yeah. Well, I mean, is there anything else you'd like to share with the scientists who are listening to our podcast? I mean, I think what you're doing is really uh, fantastic. Yeah, no, I I think it's, um, you know, knowing that, you know, it's going to be going to scientists and such, you know, kind of almost in an unrelated CPATH avenue. Careers in science can bring you a lot of places. I never thought I'd be doing what I did with my PhD or when I came to the States from Ireland originally. And I think just, just keeping an open and inquisitive mind, if you see things that interest you, you know, you might be able to, to, to jump to do that thing today, but how would you fill your skills over a, a two to five year period to, to suddenly elevate yourself into those conversations in the future and, and realizing that the, 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 the value of a degree in science and a PhD is teaching you how to think and teaching how to critically think. And it's so, it's so amazingly important. And you can take it just as when you're in grad school, you take it that everyone thinks like that. And it's, it, mm-hmm. it's not true. Um, you know, it's a, it, it can be a flawed skill set as well. If it's too deep, you lose the, the, the relational aspects, but it is a skill. And I think anyone can develop that in any way they see fit. And it's just a, it's exciting to be a scientist in the many ways it can take you in your career. That's excellent um, commentary. And I think that, you know, especially now to postdocs and graduate students who have been very upended during this pandemic all over the globe, I'm hearing it from other sources that um, uh, there's a lot of uncertainty for postdocs and graduate students, you know, what's next, what's my path going to be? I mean, everything, science has been quite disrupted. So it's, it's nice to hear that there's, um, you know, there's other avenues, there's all kinds of avenues, especially if you're interested in type one diabetes to add value. So Absolutely. for that. So thank you, Inish. I really uh, enjoyed speaking with you today. It was great. And um, yeah, I wish you all the best. <laughs> yeah, we'll keep you, we'll keep you updated on, on, on how the EMA conversations go. Um, Absolutely.
Absolutely. We'll be watching. That's great. So have a great rest of your day. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.